an opportunity to enter into the presence of God, to receive of Him again His good things. Amen. What an awesome God we serve. How good He is to us each and every day. When we stop to think and to understand what Jesus has done and is doing for us, it becomes more and more difficult to become depressed or, or down or, uh, God forbid, hopeless. When I look at what He's doing in my life, what He's done, where He's bringing me, and you can do the exact same thing. Folks, we have a hope outside of this world that this world cannot take away. We have a strength. We have a God. We have a friend who will never leave us, who will never forsake us. He walks through these things with us and He brings us through better than we were before. Praise God. We have, a, we have an opportunity this morning to thank Him for all of that. To worship and to praise Him. To give Him glory and honor because He's worthy. Let's all stand. <clears throat> Amen. Let's pray for our service this morning. Let's pray that God would have free reign here today. That He would have permission to speak to us, to tell us exactly what we need to hear, to give us what we need this morning. For some, it'll be encouragement. For some, it might be a, a, a little tap on the behind. <laughs> but whatever it is, let's receive it today and let's move forward in the plan that God has established for us. Amen. Lord Jesus, You're an awesome God. We give glory and honor unto the Most High today. We heap unto You all worship and all praise because that You are worthy, altogether worthy to receive our worship and our praise today. Thank You, Jesus, for Your manifest presence here this morning and for the perfect will of God that will be revealed to us. Hallelujah, Jesus. We desire more than anything Your words. We desire Your presence. We desire Your will to be accomplished. This is Your church we are Your people, purchased with Your holy and precious blood. Hallelujah, Jesus. We declare that You are altogether sovereign in this place. That You are Lord and God here. You sit upon the throne. You are the Most High. Hallelujah, Jesus. We desire Your words. We desire Your will. We submit ourselves to Your authority today. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. And we trust that You will do everything that is best for us. We trust in You, Lord Jesus. We trust that You will not hurt us, that You will not do anything except for our good. Hallelujah, Jesus. We trust in You. Our faith and our hope and our confidence is in You and in You alone. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. We heap unto You glory and honor. Thank You, Jesus, for this opportunity You've given us today to enter into Your presence, the very throne room of God, the Holy of Holies, Hallelujah, Jesus. I am excited today to receive of You. I'm excited today to enter into Your presence once again. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. I pray that You'd minister to each and every need. That You'd encourage Your people. Speak comfortably unto them. Strengthen and edify them. Draw us into Your presence today and cause us to become more like You each and every day. Hallelujah, Jesus. Give us fervency and passion and zeal for the things of God. Let this world grow strangely dim. Hallelujah, Jesus. In the light of Your glory and grace. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated this morning. Tomorrow we're going to be celebrating Memorial Day. 
I see our bishop has a flag on. Amen. That's awesome. Memorial Day is typically, nowadays, a time of picnics, beginning of summer. Uh, but it was established originally to remember our servicemen and women. Those that have given, those that have sacrificed. Amen. We'll speak more about that, Lord willing, second service. But happy Memorial Day. And thank you to all of those that have sacrificed and have given of your time and a portion of your lives to serve this country. Amen. This morning we're going to continue our study in doctrine. I actually had to do a little bit of moving around. We're supposed to be uh, studying uh, the doctrine of God on Sunday mornings, but we're going to convert that to uh, Brother DeMuth teaching a Bible study starting next week. So, uh, today we're going to be talking about the doctrine of the church. We're going to continue that. Amen. Uh, Matthew 16 and 18 says, And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. Actually, let me say something else really quick about that Bible study. Brother DeMuth isn't going to be just teaching us a Bible study, okay? He's going to be teaching us how to teach a Bible study. And so you know what that means. I have confidence in you, my brother. <laughs> no, he's a good teacher. He's a good teacher. So that means that once we go through the Bible study, we are commissioned, therefore, after to go and teach ourselves. How awesome is that? And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that uh, maybe Brother DeMuth will have time uh, at some point. I'm not telling you what you, you need to do here, but I hope, I would like, I enjoy a, uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know, when we teach Bible studies, the greatest fear that anyone has is, well, what if they ask a question and I don't know the answer? <clears throat> That's always everyone's greatest fear. Well, it, it turns out there's actually only so many questions that people ask. And once you nail those down, you're probably pretty good. There's some friends out there, you know, that ask the, the wacky questions, and they're fun. But, but by and large, there's only so many questions that people ask. And uh, so I, I'm hoping he covers some of those as well. Because that gives us confidence to go out and teach a Bible study. To answer questions. And aren't we supposed to be the ones that have the answers? Amen. We are supposed to have a ready answer of the hope that is in us. We are supposed to have, we're the ones that are supposed to know the Word of God. We're the ones that are supposed to be able to uh, be apt to teach the Word of God. And so, I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be really good. Amen. So, uh, the church. We left off the last lesson uh, talking about officers, ministers, leaders in the church, uh, the qualifications and the fact that they did indeed have a kind of a set hierarchy, uh, a chain of command, different offices that were established and qualifications for each. And we went over those in the last lesson. Today we're going to be looking at those, uh, however you want to call them, offices, titles, uh, responsibilities, the first of them, of course, is apostles. They were the first ministry gift that God gave to the church. And uh, I should say also, I'm going to be throwing a lot of Scripture out on this lesson today. And I apologize again to Sister DeMuth. Um, I think in the future, if this happens, I'm going to be a little bit more judicious in the, the Scriptures I give to the, uh, the sound people. But... Uh, Otherwise, just hang on. Well, awesome. Well, I got up my game then. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right. So, Luke chapter six and verse thirteen says, "And when it was when it was day, he called unto them 
Unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. Acts 16 and 4 says, And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20 says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Uh, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, uh, He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The word apostle is actually a transliteration of the Greek word apostolos, which means a messenger or one sent on a mission. Okay? The original apostles were those whom Jesus chose to be with Him. These are the ones that He personally commissioned and sent forth. And we are going to make a distinction in a little bit between the original twelve apostles and the use of the word apostle as it is used today. Okay? Matthew 10 and 2 says, Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, the first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, John his brother, and it goes on and lists the twelve apostles. Uh, Luke 22:14 says, And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. This is Jesus uh, with his twelve apostles during the Last Supper. There were twelve of them all together. Uh, we read that uh, in Acts chapter 1 through 50, uh, 15 through 26, which we won't read, but we read there when Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus and later committed suicide, that he was replaced by someone else to make the number 12 again. Uh, the names of these 12 are written in the 12 foundations of the New Jerusalem. We read that in Revelation 21:14, And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. <clears throat> So we read here that these twelve were kind of a special thing. They were a special deal. Uh, they were the foundation along with the prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. Okay, the requirements for apostleship. In Acts 1, 21 and 22, uh, Wherefore of these men which have companied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that He was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of His resurrection? Okay, so we see two qualifications here. It had to have had been with the Lord uh, during that time period. Also, they had to have been witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.1 says, Am not I an apostle? Am not I free? Have not I seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are, ye, are not ye my work in the Lord? Okay, so you had to have seen the Lord. Second uh, Corinthians 12 and 12 says, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. The office had to have been confirmed by the working of signs and wonders. Okay, so there were other people that were called apostles in Scripture, not of these twelve. Obviously, the apostle Paul was one of them. He was given a vision of Jesus and was personally commissioned by him as an apostle to the Gentiles. Romans 11.13 says, For I speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 says, am, not, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? Paul himself declares himself to be an apostle on twelve separate occasions. So we see that he is an apostle. Barnabas, in Acts 14 and 14, says, uh, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people crying out. So here he's identified as an apostle also. We read also that there were people in their day that were claiming to be apostles and they were not apostles. 2 Corinthians 11.13 says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And in Revelation 2.2, 2, it says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. 
So we see that there are people running around even back in the day uh, that claim to be something that they simply were not. Originally, use of the original twelve, the term apostle came to be used in a wider sense for those who had been with Jesus, such as the seventy, especially those who seemed to have a special commission to start new churches. Today, we would see the term apostle and missionary as having the same meaning, the same primary office. Okay, there's a distinction between the original twelve apostles and the term apostle as used of men today. The church can have only one foundation. Again, Ephesians 2 and 20 says, uh, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. That foundation has been laid. And it is being built upon and has been built upon. Uh, It's not continuing to be laid. Apostle, as used in its wider sense, of course, uh, there are apostles today. Those commissioned by God and especially gifted to open up new areas for Jesus Christ. Uh, Missionaries, both global and home, would be considered apostles in that sense of the term. Now, what we're not talking about is Apostle Mike and Apostle Jimmy, uh, who like to be called apostle for whatever reason. Okay? Uh, That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the office. We're talking about the responsibilities being discharged that line up with that office. When we claim apostolic doctrine or apostolic authority, we're not talking about apostles living today or any other apostle. We're referring to the teachings of the original twelve, whom we believe to have special authority from God. Okay? Now, I haven't done the research to be able to establish this dogmatically, but I believe in my heart of hearts that uh, Mattathias wasn't the one that was to replace Judas. I think it was supposed to be Paul originally. Uh, But again, that's just spitballing and I'm throwing that out there. Anyway, I can't establish that at this point. In any case... They were given authority to interpret Christ's teachings into actionable commands. Uh, We see them taking the instruction that Jesus gave during the Last Supper and establishing that into the act of communion. Okay? Uh, Matthew 28, 19, verses Acts 2.38 is an easy example here. Jesus said, Baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Peter got up and interpreted that by saying, Baptize in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. They were given authority to set precedent and doctrine for the church. You know, the reason we we use terms like Old Testament and New Testament is because of the apostles. Talking about uh, the death of the testator. And the testament has no effect until the death of the testator. And then it comes into effect. So we read about the Old Testament, and this is the New Testament, which came into effect at the death of Jesus Christ. It was the apostles who established the role of Christ as Savior, Mediator, High Priest. We see these different teachings in the epistles, setting precedent and doctrine for the church. No one today has the authority to do this. That's already been done. The foundation has already been laid. You can call yourself apostle if you want, but you don't have the authority to write Scripture. Okay? I'm sorry. It's already written. It's already established. In Scripture, we find no uh, apostolic succession that was set up. There's no Scripture for it. There's no precedent in the early church for it. There was no apostolic succession set up. That special authority ended with them. Now, uh, people, for whatever reason, completely flip this around and say, well, yeah, their authority continues. You know, they're still in the popes, but their ability to do signs and wonders is gone. I don't understand that. Their special authority in that uh, they were able to establish doctrine, they were able to write Scripture, they were able to, to do all of these things that we previously talked about. That ended with them. 
They were, uh, along with the prophets, part of the foundation that the universal church is built on. That's already laid. In Revelation 22, 18 and 19, we read this. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues which are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the, word of the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life, and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Now this was given to John the Revelator on the island of Patmos, A.D. 90, 95, somewhere around there. And uh, everything else had already been established at this point. Okay? Now, this particular verse uh, is supposed to apply specifically to the revelation given to John. Okay? But, this principle applies to Scripture as a whole. We are not allowed to add to or take away from the words of this book. Any part of it. We're not, we're not given the authority to do that. We can say yes to it. We can say no to it. That's it. But we can't, we can't line item veto. We can't pick and choose. It's all of it or none of it. In stating this at the very end of God's Word, I believe Jesus is stating, again, something I can't establish at this point, but I believe Jesus is stating that our Bible is complete. There will be no more adding to, taking away, establishing doctrine, anything of the sort. It's done. It's finished. It's complete. <clears throat> It's not going to take place anymore. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's the office of the apostle. The next we read about is prophets. Ephesians 2 and 20 talks about the, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. For going by listing, this would be second in rank. Uh, they were subject to the apostles, though. 1 Corinthians 14.37 says, If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. The Apostle Paul uh, writing here. So they were subject to the teachings of the apostles. Apostolic authority. Paul seemed to give the gift of prophecy the highest priority when seeking spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians 14, 1-3, he says, Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him. Howbeit... In the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. Paul defines what prophecy is. In 1 Corinthians 14, 3 and 4, he says, But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation to comfort. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself. But he that prophesieth edifieth the church. Okay, here we see that prophecy is given for the edification of the church. Acts 15 and 32 says, Judas and Silas, being prophets also themselves, exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. Okay, again, exhortation, comfort. Telling the future is what we typically think of when we hear the word prophet or the word prophecy. Someone explaining what's going to take place sometime in the future. But that seems to be a less frequent function of the prophet in the New Testament. Of course, we read about Agabus. There are two scriptures, uh, Acts 11, 27-29, and Acts 21, 10-12. We won't take the time to read those. But we read about Agabus uh, foretelling, telling the future. That there's going to be a dearth in the land. And in Acts 21, he, he tells Paul that if you go into Jerusalem, uh, you're going you're gonna to be bound. <coughs> He went into Jerusalem and he was bound. <laughs> so it came true. <clears throat> but primarily, prophecy is forth-telling. It's given to the church for edification. Prophecy was instrumental in Timothy's enablement for ministry. In 1 Timothy 4.14, it says, Neglect not the gift that is in thee which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Peter identified a prophecy told by the prophet Joel during his sermon on Pentecost in Acts 2.17. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. The prophet was prophesying about prophesying. 
How about that? The gift of prophecy remains in effect today, both in foretelling and in forthtelling. In fact, a lot of the preaching we hear today, if it's anointed, uh, will involve the gift of prophecy in some form or other. The, pro- the, the gift of prophecy is going forth. It's being manifest through the preaching for the edification of the church. Evangelists. In the New Testament, uh, this office is a bit harder to identify because everyone, in one form or other, was involved with the work of evangelism. In the Greek, the word evangelist is derived from the verb that is translated to preach the gospel. Philip is the only one we actually see being called an evangelist proper. Uh, Acts 21 and 8 says, The next day we, we that were of Paul's company, company departed and came unto Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist, which was one of the seven and abode with him. Looking at what Scripture says about Philip's activities in Samaria, we can determine that an evangelist is one whose ministry is directed primarily toward winning the unsaved. Acts 8 and 5 says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. We see when he ministered to the Ethiopian man. Philip led him through the plan of salvation, was able to baptize him, and immediately he was carried away in the Spirit. We read of the apostles that they would do this, baptize them, see them filled with the Holy Ghost, and they'd stay for a year or two or three and establish the church and set up elders and, and all of this stuff. Not, not with Philip, though. Philip got the guy baptized and then the Spirit took him somewhere else. It's interesting to note this. And it's also interesting that Philip's soul-winning ministry was also accompanied by miracles and signs. In 2 Timothy 4 and 5, Timothy's not called an evangelist like Philip was, but he's exhorted to do the work of an evangelist. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. So an evangelist then is one whose chief goal is to preach the gospel with the object of bringing someone into salvation. Pastors. Okay, these, these previous offices, apostle, prophet, evangelist, they were given to the church in general. These next offices are given to the church locally, the local church. The term pastor as the spiritual leader of the local church is found only once in the New Testament. And that's in Ephesians 4 and 11. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Typically, we see them referred to as elder, overseer, or shepherd. In 1 Peter 5, 2-4, it says, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples of the, to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So the pastor is kind of the under-shepherd, under the chief shepherd. It's not the pastor's flock. The pastor didn't die for anyone. Jesus Christ died for someone. He's been delegated authority by the chief shepherd, whose people you are. We are all a possession of Jesus Christ. Amen. Acts 20, 28 and 29 says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Amen. John 21, 15 through 17, we read about uh, a conversation between Jesus and the Apostle Peter. Jesus asking him, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? If you do, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. It's difficult for us in the West to understand the close and intimate relationship uh, that the, the Palestinian, the Israelite shepherd would have with the sheep. Uh, we don't really get that. We've never been in that position. Uh, and, 
And I gotta say, I mean, I know, I know that we've all had pastors, and I hope you loved your pastors. I loved mine, and I know that my pastor always loved me, but I didn't really know how he loved me until I became a pastor myself. It's it's kind of like I didn't know how a a guy could love that ugly-looking lump of flesh, a baby, like they do, and just go nuts over them. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's cool, but... Eh, really? All that? Yeah, all that. When I had my first child, uh, I understood. And uh, it, it's... I believe, I believe it's, a, a, it's almost a supernatural impartation uh, of a special kind of love that the pastor has for a congregation. And, um, anyway, uh, if it's anything, if it's anything close to the way that God loves us, God really loves us. Amen. Okay, teachers. Ephesians 4 and 11, of course, talks about uh, the office of the teacher. Some like to put the offices of pastor and teacher together because of the phrasing used in the verse. Give some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Some like to kind of lump those together. and I wouldn't disagree. I think a pastor ought to be apt to teach. Uh, I I think that would be good. But some, in some contexts, however, it does seem to be listed as a separate office. For example, Acts 13 and 1 says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So we read about certain prophets and teachers. Okay, teaching is listed as a spiritual gift. In Romans 12, 6 and 7 says, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching. In this case, uh, it might be exercised by any child of God upon whom this gift is bestowed. Paul refers to himself as a teacher, also as an apostle. 2 Timothy 1 and 11 says, Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. Paul admonishes Timothy to exercise a teaching ministry. 2 Timothy 2 and 2 says, In the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men, who shall be able to teach others also. We see it listed as part of the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19-20 says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you all way, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So we see sandwiched between teaching, baptizing. Teach, baptize, teach. A lot of teaching. A bishop must be a teacher. 1 Timothy 3, 2 says, A bishop that must be blameless. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Leaders in the church are instructed to teach. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 says, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Teaching, ladies and gentlemen, is so very important. And oftentimes it's kind of, can be kind of poo-pooed a little bit. And, and placed down somewhere, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of like at, at a big conference. The emphasis is on the Sunday evening, on the evening service where the, the preacher is going to get up and preach. And in the morning, we're going to have some Bible teaching. And you'll see 50%, 75% of the people make it during the morning 
But everyone makes it to the evening. And that's good. I mean, don't get me wrong. Make it to the, make it to the service. Get the preaching. Preaching is awesome. But we also need good, sound Bible teaching. We need to be rooted and grounded in truth. That is important. Lord willing, our next service, we're going to go into why that's important. But you can't live on preaching alone. You're not going to. You will starve to death. You will fall away. You will die if that's all you get. We need both. We need both. Teaching is very important. And that's something all of us can do. All of us need to do. When I first got into church, for whatever reason, I mean, I knew John 3.16. I knew a little bit of Psalm 23. Uh, I think that's probably about it. But as soon as I started talking about you know, this, this awesome experience. I felt the presence of God. you got to come to this church. It's awesome. And they would ask me questions. And I, that's a good question. I, I have no idea. But I know somebody that does probably does know the answer. Just come to church. For whatever reason, they weren't really too interested in, well, how did it feel? Oh, that sounds amazing. They had specific questions concerning Scripture and doctrine. People who I didn't think ever went to church at all. So pretty quick I learned that i got to get some answers. I don't know why they keep asking me these things. But later on I figured, well, who else are they going to ask? I'm the only one they know that goes to church. So I better get some answers. I needed to be taught as well as preached to. Teaching's important. We need both. All right. Uh, elders or presbyters. This is a term that was borrowed from the synagogue and from the congregation of Israel. The Hebrew word for elder uh, was zakwen. Probably not, but that's how it's spelled. Uh, which meant an older man. Haven't we already talked about this? When I say elder, I mean that respectfully. <clears throat> the Greek word presbyteros has the same meaning and is the source of the word presbyter. Paul appointed elders after he founded churches in Asia. In Acts 14.23 we read, And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Elders typically filled the role of pastor, uh, as we understand it today, and they had the oversight of the local church. Acts 20 and 17 says, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. Titus 1 and 5 says, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. You're noticing uh, that this word is being used in the plural sense. Elders in every church. Well, when they got all together into one place, that was one church, but typically they would have home church. They would have churches in their, their houses, in their homes. And every one of those had an elder as well. First Peter 5, 1-4 says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly. Uh, we've already read this. Not for filthy, filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. When the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Referring to the elders which are among you. Elders were called out and sought after for prayer. James 5:14 and 15 says, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. So that's the office of the elder, or presbyter. The office of bishop, or overseer. The King James Version translates the Greek word episkopos as bishop. 
Other translations use the word overseer. Of course, this is the Greek word that we get the word episcopal from. We see the Greek words presbyteros, which we translate as elder, and episkopos, bishop or overseer, used interchangeably in Scripture to describe the same office. For example, Titus 1, 5-9 says this, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders, presbyteros, in every city, as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop, episcopos, must be blameless, as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Amen. So not only do we see that they're used interchangeably, but man, there's a lot of qualifications here. Oh, my word. <clears throat> and again, <laughs> sorry, not sorry to point out that uh, nowhere in here do we read about good preacher. <clears throat> again, don't get me wrong, I love good preaching. That's not a qualification for ministry. It's not a qualification for the office of elder or bishop. Originally, the bishop or the overseer was over one church. It wasn't until the second century that the bishop or overseer came to be over several churches. I have no doubt that sometime after the passing of the original twelve apostles, uh, there probably at some point uh, there was a need created for a more robust hierarchy, a more robust organization within the churches. Like we have today in the UPCI. It's a worldwide organization. Deacons. The office of deacon. The word deacon is from the Greek word diakonos, which means servant. Deacons are mentioned directly in only two passages. The first is in Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. And in 1 Timothy 3, 8-13 says, Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let thee also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Okay, we don't see in Scripture uh, any duties delineated for the office of deacon specifically, but it seems to be that their duties had to do with the management of charities, uh, more of the business affairs of the church. They would serve the church in such a way as to free the elders, the overseers, for prayer and the ministry of the Word. In Acts chapter 6, we read about such an, such, such an event. The widows were being ignored in the daily ministrations. And so, the Grecians came to the apostles and said, Hey, they're being ignored. And the apostles said, Well, is it reason that we should... Leave off prayer and, and serve tables. Now, at first, one could look at that and say, well, that's a little bit arrogant. Don't you have a servant's heart? You could come to that conclusion pretty easily. It's not arrogance. It's a prudent division of labor. When you got one guy... Yeah, he's going to be doing everything. But isn't it nicer to have five guys each doing specific things? That's a lot, that's a lot easier. That's a lot nicer. It's a lot more effective. <clears throat> I hate to use terminology like this, especially when referring to uh, 
church organization, but if you look at it like the CEO of a large global corporation, McDonald's, for example, or Walmart, do you think the CEO is going to be at the local store level training people how to stock shelves? Well, why not? It's too big for his britches. He needs just to be a little bit more humble and, and help us out with that. Well, yeah, or maybe he could hire someone to take care of that while he worries about the 15 lawsuits that are going on at any given moment the legal and political ramifications of trying to break into a new territory, a new country, maybe he could worry about that. Because that needs to be taken care of too. And he's in a position to do that. The analogy breaks down in several areas, but you, you see the point. These are all important things to do. We need to train new people on how to stock shelves. Because I promise you, if nobody knows how to stock the shelves, the CEO isn't going to have to worry about anything anymore either. Because they're going to go out of business. So that's important. Okay? It's just not the CEO's job. It's somebody else's job. It's an important job. It's a necessary job. But it's not his job. It's somebody else's job. <clears throat> so, that's what the apostles were trying to get across here. There are people capable. There are people just sitting around waiting for something to do. That these people, now we got something for them to do. A ministry. And they jumped in and they took care of it. We see Stephen. After Stephen stepped into this role, we hear a lot about him, don't we? I don't hear anything about him before this, though. Yeah. Yeah, well, by the will of God. Amen. So, that's the office of the deacon. We read about ministers in Scripture. Interestingly, the Greek word that we translate as minister is the same Greek word that we use to get deacon. But there are a number of passages where the word diakonos cannot refer to the office of the deacon. 1 Corinthians 3 and 5 says, Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? We couldn't apply to Paul the office of deacon. But he does apply himself as a minister. Ephesians 3 and 7 says, Whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Paul refers to himself as a minister five times. Several times refers to his younger workers as ministers. This term is used to emphasize the servanthood role of the spiritual leader. And this is something that needs to be brought across in every... every. I don't know if it's as much of a, a big deal now because, I don't know, our bishop would have a, a better feel of... of how many ministers are, are applying nowadays versus five, ten years ago. But the way I see it is the office of the ministry is not as appealing as it once was. And the reason for that is sad. It's a sad reason. And the reason is because it's not respected like it used to be. Back in the day... If you were a preacher, if you were a pastor, you were well-respected in town. You'd get preferential treatment. You'd get discounts at the store. Everybody loved the office of the pastor. I want to be a pastor. I want to be treated like that. Nowadays, nobody cares about the pastor. I mean, out there. You know what I mean. They don't care if you're a pastor, minister, bishop, pope, whatever you are. I... Do you got the money or not? This is the price, pal. <laughs> I don't care what you are. 
And even worse than that, in some areas, if people know that you're a minister, they're going to look on you differently. They're going to mistrust you. Instead of being, oh, you're a, oh, you're a minister. One of those, yeah. I don't trust you. And to some extent with good reason. Unfortunately. So, understanding that when you accept the call to ministry in any form, you're accepting a call to servanthood. You're not accepting the call to get preferential treatment. That's by and large gone now, so we don't really have to worry about that anymore. But, it's a call to servanthood. And the higher you go in ministry, the more people you're able to serve. The more people you submit yourself to in ministry. Now when you understand it that way, that's a little bit different spin on things. That's a little, that's a little bit different way to look at it. <clears throat> you ought not aspire to pastor, presbyter, district superintendent because of all of the accolades and all of the... I tell you what, if that's all you're in it for, folks, it, you're not, you're not going to like it. That's not worth it. The few bennies you get just isn't worth the price you pay. I'm telling you. You better be in it for another reason. Because you love Jesus and you're answering His call to ministry. <clears throat> All right. The goal of the leader is to equip the saints for ministry. Ephesians 4.12 says, For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Every child of God is expected to minister. We are all called to ministry of some kind. We are all called to servanthood. Amen. Leaders or rulers. The word rule and ruler is used several times in the King James Version to designate church leaders. Romans 12 and 8 says, Or he that exhorts on exhortation, he that giveth, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that soweth mercy with cheerfulness. 1 Timothy 5 and 17 says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Hebrews 13 and 7 says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Hebrews 13 and 17 says, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy, and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. And Hebrews 13.24 says, Salute all them that have the rule over you, and all the saints they of Italy salute you. Other translations will translate this word as lead or leader. It means the same thing. So these are the offices we find uh, in Scripture concerning church hierarchy, church administration, organization. <clears throat> and that will conclude <clears throat> our lesson on uh, church doctrine. Now, there are some who want to diminish the role of leadership in the church. Okay, Duly constituted and recognized leadership as a biblical teaching is undeniable. While doing research for this, I came across some people who were, uh, they were of the mind that, you know, uh, and this is going to sound right at first blush, but, but Jesus is, is our leader. Jesus is our overseer. And no man. Uh, we're all equal in the sight of God. And all of that's true. Absolutely. But, God does delegate authority to certain individuals. And... Uh, we need to recognize the authority of God wherever we find it. Now, of course, we can extrapolate from there and say we can recognize the authority of God outside the, outside the church structure as well. Our government, our government officials carry with them the authority of God, whether you agree with their stance or not. 
They carry the authority of God. When we read about the apostles in the book of Acts, they submitted themselves to punishment. Were they wrong? Of course they were wrong. Were they in the will of God? Nope. They told them to stop preaching Jesus. They beat them. They submitted to the beating. They submitted to the arrest. They submitted to jail because they had the authority to do that. What they did not submit to, they did not stop preaching and teaching Jesus. So we need to understand that. God does delegate authority to individuals, and that's God's authority to delegate. It's not the individual's authority. In and of ourselves, we have no authority. All authority comes from God. He's the only one with inherent authority. Any authority we possess has been delegated to us ultimately from God. He can give it, and He can take it right back. Whenever He desires. But that's God's authority, not man's authority. So when we submit to a man, we submit to a woman, we're not submitting to them. We're submitting to the authority God has given them. In the army, the uh, saying is, we salute the rank, not the man. A lot of truth to that. You respect the rank. You don't have to respect the the man, but you've got to respect the rank. You You don't have to approve of the man or the woman that you're submitting to, but you've got to submit to the authority God has given them. Because if you don't, your, your rebellion is not against them, it's against God. Because it's God's authority you're rebelling against. God institutes authority in His church according to His will. And when we rebel against that, we place ourselves outside of God's chain of command. When we're separated from that chain of command, we are neither under authority and we have no authority. We cannot have authority unless we first submit to authority. And God institutes that according to His will. If you can't trust the leader, if you can't respect the leader, then please trust God who chose that leader out and submit to them for His sake. Because here's the thing, folks. If the leader's all messed up and he's going wacky, what is that to you? Your responsibility, as I see it in Scripture, is as much as you can, submit yourself to them. And if they're doing something wrong, guess who's going to deal with that? The God that put them there. If you try to deal with that, then God's going to step back and let you deal with it. I'd rather let God deal with that. It's kind of like... uh, People, some people I've talked to are afraid of paying tithes. No one here. Because they're afraid of what the church is going to do with that money. I don't know what you're going to do with my money. You hear that, right? That's what they say, too. I give my money to your church. So I don't know what you're going to do with my money. Yeah, not your money to begin with but it's certainly not after you've given it. We give give our tithes and our offerings in accordance to the commandments found in Scripture, in submission to the Word of God. After that, that money now becomes the purview of the church, the church secretary, uh, treasurer. Somewhere in there. It's outside of your hands. You did what you're supposed to do. And if the church mismanages that, then God help the church. Because they're going to answer for that. Not to you. But to God, God will deal with that. Your responsibility is done. If you give me money and tithes and offerings and I go buy a yacht with it, God is going to bless you. And He's going to deal with me. The yacht hopefully will sink, maybe with me on it. Praise God. But these various offices, they've been established in Scripture by the will of God. And uh, we need to either uh, answer the call of God to these offices, or we need to 
answer the call to submit ourselves to the authority of God uh, in these offices. Amen. So that God's church, God's will can move forward. Amen. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, we love You. We worship and we praise You. We thank You. We thank You that You have established in Your Word and You have revealed to us Your plan of organization, how You desire Your church to be organized and run. Thank You, Jesus, for Your administration. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for wisdom and knowledge and instruction. I pray, O God, that we would continue to study out the Word of God, that we would dive into it, that we would know it, that we would memorize it, that we would hide it in our hearts, that we would be apt to teach. Hallelujah, Jesus, that we would have a ready answer for those who ask of us the reason of the hope that is in us with meekness and fear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.